Welcome back to the MicroConf podcast. This is a MicroConf refresh episode. Today, you're going to hear from me and Dr. Sherry Walling. We talk about the habits of successful entrepreneurs. We dig into some of the key habits that we've seen from both our perspectives. Me as a founder, now a mentor, advisor, and investor, and Sherry as a founder coach and a founder consultant. She helps people think through really hard decisions and has just seen people succeed wildly as well as, you know, maybe self-sabotage or, or not do so well. And so we weigh in from our collective perspectives and I think this turned out to be a great talk and a great session. So I hope you enjoy it. Before we dive into that, MicroConf Remote tickets are now on sale. Head to microconfremote.com to pick up your ticket to MicroConf Remote 3.0. It's the no-code guide for B2B SaaS founders. It's gonna be taking place at the end of November. As always, our remote events are quite inexpensive, but still extremely high quality. We do about 90 minutes a day for three days, and we're gonna take a deep dive into some of the nuts and bolts of building and automating processes using a huge suite of no-code tools that frankly is growing by the day. We're gonna be look at using no-code in marketing, to sales, to SEO automation, and all the things. So you don't wanna miss it, honestly. We have sold a ton of tickets to our remote events, and the response has been highly positive in the sense of there are a lot of remote slash virtual summits slash whatevers. MicroConf does it differently. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't checked one out, or even if you have, we continue to outdo ourselves. Producer Xander puts together an amazing show and also creates an amazing environment for founders to connect with one another to hit up the relationships and community that MicroConf's all about. So microconfremote.com if you're interested. And now let's dive into my conversation at MicroConf Local in Austin with Dr. Sherry Walling on the habits of successful entrepreneurs. So we're going to be running through six or seven habits of successful entrepreneurs. And these are pulled from our you know decade uh, plus experience working with founders and, and observations that, that we have. You cool if I kick us off with the first Go one? Go right ahead. All right. So number one, the willingness to be wrong. Yeah, there's no slides for this one. It's just like a, a conversation. But there, a, a big pattern that I see in founders who are succeeding, whether I'm an advisor or an investor or just folks that I see at MicroConf who are starting up and then a year later they're doing 10K a month and a year later they're doing seven figures, right? It's they are willing to take risks and willing to make mistakes. They're willing to fail quickly and willing to ship things that don't necessarily work out. And in some people, this is a very natural behavior. And in others, like myself, I'm pretty risk averse. I had a really hard time with this at the start. So in 2005, six, as I was launching things and blogging about this, I had a real hard time not knowing all the answers because up until then I was a software developer. And as a software developer, you're writing code and it works or it doesn't. Making mistakes as a developer is a real problem, right? The switch to entrepreneurship, I think, is a big mental leap for a lot of us, especially more left-brained folks like myself who want to be correct. We want the right way to do it because if you do it the right way, then you don't fail. You don't make mistakes. So I think folks who are able to either do that innately or to learn that behavior tend to uh, make progress faster. I think the left brain equivalent of that, the willingness to be wrong, is to shift into the scientific method, right? It's a hypothesis. I'm going to collect some data, look at the outcomes, and then shift or iterate as needed. Because I think that flexibility of thinking is a little bit easier than, what if I'm wrong? 
And the fact is, as an entrepreneur, you're going to be wrong a lot. And if you're really pushing into your business, you're always at the edge of what you know and what you've done before, which means you're never really feeling super secure and comfortable. So that willingness to make mistakes and just try a lot of things, I think is really important. Yeah, I think one that I would add in terms of what it looks like for successful entrepreneurs is a sense of intentionality in how you work. So there's this message out there in the startup world that it's heads down, go, if you'll excuse the term, balls to the walls. And the reality is that that doesn't really work. And that most of us who are going to build successful businesses over time are running the marathon of entrepreneurship. And that requires some clear thoughtfulness about how to do that. Just as if you were training for a marathon, you plan your training uh, regimen, you plan your rest, you plan your recharge time, you think about how to pace yourself so that you have these seasons in your business of planning. And then you have seasons of like heads down, deep sprint, I'm making something, I'm prepping for a launch. And then you have maybe a season or a rhythm of reviewing what you've done, making sure that you're improving on the parts that didn't work or could work more efficiently. And you're thinking about yourself and your team in a way that is optimizing energy, but is not wasting a lot of time or resource. So I would say very simply, successful entrepreneurs are very intentional about how they work. They're not reactive, and they're not showing up to a workday ready to respond to whatever comes in the inbox. There's a plan, there's a goal, both for the day, for the week, for the month, for the year. Yeah, a phrase I, to piggyback on that, a phrase I commonly use, in our space, we should think in terms of years, not months. When we watch the Facebook movie that Aaron Sorkin wrote, Social Network, or we watch any of these documentaries, it seems like everything happens overnight, but in fact, it doesn't. Even in the, if you look at the big Silicon Valley companies, they take many years to get where they are, and any of the kind of bootstrapping success stories we hear about take years and years from the time they write the first line of code until they hit seven figures or they, they have an exit. My fastest growing and most successful SaaS app I ever built was called Drip, and it, some people say, it seems like you worked on it for about a year from the time I came up with, from the time we started writing code until it was sold, basically. It was three and a half years. And so if I had been running at 90%, 90 miles an hour for that time, you absolutely, without a doubt, will burn yourself out. And so finding a cadence to think in terms of months, not, I'm sorry, years, not months, and to think of it as a marathon, not a sprint, is absolutely uh, you know, a habit of successful founders. My next one is um, moving fast. And yeah, successful entrepreneurs, they try many things quickly. They take action instead of waiting in indecision. The reality is, piggybacks on my last one, the reality is that might lead to failure. And they're not all over the place in terms of doing scattershot things, but we have folks in Tiny Seed or who I have invested in or who I've, I've advised in, and I watch two founders one who says, I need to get comparison pages up for SEO, right? Where it says my company versus MailChimp, my company versus this and that. Put them in the footer because I want to rank for these. And one founder will say, great, I'm going to do an 80-20 approach to this. I'm going to write all the copy this week, or I'm going to have my copywriter write it this week, and I'm going to get it out as quickly as possible. And a week later, something's up, and then over the time, they refine it. 
going very quickly, knowing that it's not going to be perfect, but at least it's out there. And then I can watch a, a separate founder approach the exact same thing, but take literally three months to get that out because there's a reason because it's not perfect because well the contractor flaked and now they have to find a second one and there's always a reason why they're not getting there fast enough and if you watch founders in our space if you look at Derek Reimer with Savvy Cal if you look at Ben Ornstein with Tuple if you look at anybody that you admire the odds are they're shipping a lot of things and they don't know everything's going to work but at least they're getting it out there so my next uh, thought about sort of habits for successful founders really has to do with what you're doing here in the room today. And that is every successful entrepreneur I know got there through relationships. And there are lots of relationships that become important as an entrepreneur. The people that mentor you, the people who you learn from, your teachers, those are important relationships, obviously investing in your own skill set and then investing in people who are going to help you when things get rough or you need a sounding board or you need a second opinion. So making relationships with people who are further along than you are, extraordinarily important. Also, the other side of the spectrum, making relationships with people that you are mentoring, that you are helping, those who are coming behind you that are starting up that aren't as far along as you. Because those people become part of your senior leadership team when you get really big, or they become super fans. They become ambassadors, evangelists for the work that you're doing because you're investing in them and they're investing back in you. I think, too, when we think about every important opportunity, at least I know that I've had in my career, I can trace it back to someone I sat by at a dinner who said, hey, let me introduce you to this person, let me introduce you to that person, let me show up at this event. And so it's a very human enterprise <laughs> that we're involved in. Even though it feels like it's about the software, right? The thing that we're building. It's always a human endeavor when it's those customers who are gonna buy your software, those clients who are gonna become your super fans. And also, even outside of the context of your business per se, the relationships that you have with your friendships, your personal life, the people that are cheering you on, that are celebrating you, that are like scooping you up when you've had a bad day or something has imploded, all of those become extraordinarily important in preserving your mental health and well-being for the marathon that is the entrepreneurial endeavor. Yeah, when I started to become an entrepreneur and I was launching um, my first products, I was working day jobs that I didn't like and doing contracting agreements that I didn't enjoy. And I told Sherry, I'm going to do this all on my own. I don't need, I don't need colleagues. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone. Because I was just like, I don't like working with people. And that's what I said. And she would chuckle. But I, and I brute forced it and I tried to do it on my own. And I had I had modest success. I had enough success that I could quit the day job, but it was nothing incredible. It changed for me when I finally had the realization that it's not that I don't like working with people. It's I don't like working with people that I don't like, or I don't like working with people <laughs> that I can't handpick. So these days I handpick my co-founder, my colleagues, the folks who, the relationships, to, like to trace, I don't know if I've ever told this story before, but to trace the the long thread of something that gets you to a place. Like, we pro I probably wouldn't have started MicroConf if in 2009 we were living in Fresno and Joel Spolsky with Joel on Software was having an event in San Francisco. It was a three and a half hour drive each way. It was 99 bucks. I didn't want to go. 
I didn't want to be in a room of other, it was for developers and such, and I was like. Because people. Because people, right? I don't need that, blah, blah, blah. It's a long day. I just had every excuse why I shouldn't go there, okay? So I, I went there, and I, it was a great event. It was fun. And I'm literally walking out, and I see Jeff Atwood, which you guys know he co-founded Stack Overflow with Joel. And Jeff Atwood and I had been blogging for years and knew of each other online. So it was just this thing of, I, so I've been writing essays, blah, blah, blah. So I say, Jeff Atwood, he said, yeah, who are you? I said, I'm Rob Walling, I have this blog. And he's I love that blog. And I was like, yeah, man, this is great. And we started chatting, he said, you really should speak at Business to Software. And I'm like, I've heard of that, but I don't know anybody. I, I'm just not gonna pitch a talk. I've never done a talk from stage. He's like, no, Joel is part of it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you on stage. And I'm thinking, holy shit, I don't, this is terrifying. This is BOS, this is Joel. These are like my idols. This is 12 years ago. So sure enough, he emails, Joel emails the organizer, and they're like, you can do an, what's essentially a lightning talk, like a Pachachka talk, which is like a 10 minute talk. So I like, timidly practice for 70 hours for this 10 minute talk because I'm like shaking and I go and of course it, those moments were life changing for me. I met a bunch of people, some people who knew me from my blog but then I did the talk that got exposure. People said you should write a book. I wrote the book like on and on. I don't know if the podcast would have started. I don't know if microconf. I don't know if all these things and you can go back to this one thread of having relationships and fighting fear I think is probably the lesson about, you know, of that anecdote. And to like, tap onto that, a few years later, I started focusing my practice on entrepreneurs. Rob mentions to Mark, who runs Business of Software, my wife is doing a lot of speaking and conversation around entrepreneur mental health. Can she come to Business of Software? So I got to be on the stage of Business of Software, and I give a talk after Seth Godin, who I met in you know, backstage, who later endorsed my book, which couldn't have hurt sales. And so all of the relationships stack on top of each other. And I think the way that you elevate other people's connections and relationships too becomes helpful. And I just want to say, Rob and I are from, we both grew up in families that we're, we're not networkers. We don't come from wealth. We don't come from connection. This is not something that we're good at. It's not something that we knew coming into how to be successful as a human. These are just things that we've figured out and one thing led to another. And I think it's been wonderful to see what's evolved over time. That was my point. Was it? Relationships was my point. It's your turn. You're oh. number four. Oh, all right. All right. I thought I did move fast, but... <laughs> it's like this at our house, too. Focus. So the entrepreneurs I know who are successful, they focus on the right things instead of shiny object syndrome. Most of the time I talk with an entrepreneur who's a little bit, who's not focusing, they often are having moderate success with something and they're not putting in the work and doing the hard things to get that business forward or to get that piece forward and they want to bounce all over and do the next thing it's the uh, kind of the green field or the shiny object the grass is greener type situation there are a lot of distractions there are a lot of other apps that you could be building there are a lot of other markets you could be going to there are a lot of other language you could be tra translating your app into and these are all distractions towards just putting in the work and building a great business so my next one is a little bit of a counterbalance to that, and that is I think successful entrepreneurs also have something else that they care about. So not necessarily another business, but a hobby, a cause, 
something that anchors them to another part of life besides their business. And the reasons that I think this is really important actually really have to do with neurological diversity. When you think about your brain and how it works, you can think of it as little trails of neurons firing. And when we go really deep and really hard on something, like all of us are deeply invested in our businesses, we're using the same neurons over and over. And one of the reasons that a lot of entrepreneurs experience burnout is because we basically wear out those pathways. And so one of the ways to prevent burnout, stay in the marathon for a long time, is to really diversify your brain, which means to do something else, woodworking, dance, have a hobby, have something that really uses these other parts of you as a way to round out how you're using your brain to keep it healthy for the long run. I also think that relationally it's helpful for us as entrepreneurs to interact with other kinds of people. Because your journey as a founder is unique and it's really important to have connections to other founders, but also I think it's helpful to be grounded in the rest of the world, like outside of the startup Kool-Aid. And so really having things that you're interested in that you care about that are good for you in terms of your neurological health and to get you out there in the world with other kinds of folk can keep you grounded for the long run. And my last one is successful founders I know have respect for the people they work with. I know there's this well, again, I, I keep calling it the Silicon Valley thing. And there's folks who bootstrapped. I don't think treat others with the respect that they should have. And the, coming back to it being about relationships, treating your team members, treating your co-founders with respect. And I think a big part of this is I know some folks who are highly ambitious and motivated and build great companies, and they seem hard driving, but when I actually watch them, build their successful company, they're very caring and respectful, and they also admit when they, were wrong, when they are wrong. I think that's a huge part is to say, and I've told my team members, I've told my kids on multiple occasions, you know what, I was wrong about that. We, I made that call and it wasn't the right call, but it's okay. This comes back to being willing to fail, being willing to say, I did fail and here's why, we shouldn't do that next time. And maintaining those relationships for the long term, I think are, are a big deal. Any uh, questions? Yeah, we have time for a few questions before lunch. Yes, sir. Yeah, how do you validate distraction versus the right fit? Shiny object syndrome versus how do you know what is the right thing to work on? It's a big, hard question, actually, but I think Rob's thought a lot about this over time. Yeah. Basically, some people are naturally good at it. Most people are not. And the way to get good at it is to find people who are, and then they become your advisor, your colleague, your mastermind, uh, partner, your co-founder. You need outside voices often to sanity check the decisions you're making. Of Again, of the hundreds of, of founders who I've given like detailed advice to about what they should do next if presented with a problem, I think there's been two times, maybe three times, where they come to me and they say, I have this product and it's doing 10, 20 grand a month and I see this other opportunity and it's an adjacent thing and I could just fork the code base, it's not a big deal, I'll just put a new marketing set, blah, blah, blah. Two or three times, that's the right call. The other 100 or 200 times, it's the wrong call. And that's kind of my rule of thumb on it. I think the marker too is that phrase, it's not a big deal. It's always a big deal when you're diversifying your energy and so, 
if you're telling yourself the script of, oh, it's fine, it's not a big deal, that should be a little, it's a yellow flag. Maybe not a red flag, it's a yellow flag to say, okay, I think I'm probably misrepresenting this to myself and I need to check in. Outside sanity check's a big one there. Other questions for us? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, how do you balance moving fast, shipping a lot of things with the thought that it's gonna take years, not months? So it's a marathon, are you trying to sprint in a marathon is what you're saying, how do you balance those two? I think the word is intention for me, the, the sense of intention and planning. If you think about like a piece of music and how there's movement in it, there might be a, a part of the music where it's moving really fast and intensive and it's like driving towards something. And so those are your seasons of, okay, I'm really, I need to really nail my marketing funnel. So I'm throwing a bunch of stuff at it all at one time, see what's going to work. I'm diving into this piece of my business right now. But there, there should have sort of an end to that. Maybe there's a three-month experimental cycle, and then you're recognizing, okay, I'm going to keep these strategies, let go of these, and move into a different sort of tone of the music. Slow it down a little while, let things be in place, and just build that rhythm in some way of being consistent. So it's, it is a dance. It's a nuance. And I think music is a nice analogy because it, it shifts and flows, and we understand how it goes fast and then slow in a way that makes sense intuitively. So the intention and planning around it are probably more important than anything else. When I graduated from college, I worked construction for two years. I was a, an electrician in the field, putting in lights and stuff. I was, gonna, I was an apprentice. And people would say, you need to be faster at this. And so I would grab my tools, and I'd do things, and I'd try, and I was moving really, like in these really jerky motions, trying to be really fast. And then I'd watch the journeyman who were, who'd been doing it for 20 or 30 years, they didn't do that. It was this slow, methodic movement, thinking in months, not years, but it, there was no, zero wasted motion. It's everything they did was exactly the next thing. And I would reach and I'd grab the wrong tool and then I didn't have the right tool in my bag, so I'd run back to the toolbox and all this stuff. I was young, I was impressionable, and I didn't really know what I was doing. But it's this idea of figuring out what are the, being effective rather than efficient. Like being effective is trying to figure out what are the, the few things that I need to work on and, and pushing those forward. I will also say that I've had, as a rule, my entire professional career of working for myself, I've tried not to work more than 40 hours a week. That's just been a thing. We have a family and I never wanted to do that. I have had seasons of a month or two where I have worked 50, 60 hours a week because it needed to get done. But I always, we talk about it, and then I say, this is going to last for a month or two, and it's to get to a certain point, and then I'm not going to do it again for six months. So that's been a personal cadence as well. Yeah. Any? Uh, yes. Good question. What are ways that we personally create inner peace, I think, individually? It's a great question. I think we both do have things that we enjoy outside of our work. And that is a sense of peace because it allows a brain break from the stressors and questions that we're often holding. So the thing that I love to do is circus arts, so flying trapeze and aerial silks, which is really important because when I'm doing that, I'm not thinking about like my email sequence and I'm not thinking about my website copy. Like It really gives my brain a complete break because if I'm thinking about that, then I'm going to fall in my head, which is not the outcome that I want. So having something that's absorbing 
so that you have breaks. I do think we have great science around meditation, breath, yoga, long distance running, these sort of physical practices that help to recalibrate our sort of inner activation and help us to regulate. So if you don't have a, a breath practice or a meditation practice or you're not a runner, at least this cadence of taking some walks around the block periodically through your day or through your week. When we think about inner peace, we're also thinking about our bodies and how we shift from the big cerebral action into a place where our bodies can calm down and breathe and regulate. And, and for me, it's, I play a lot of tabletop games with our kids. I play the guitar, music, creating music, like gives me that sense. And then I listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts that are not work-related. So that's how I clear my head. I think we have time for one more, yeah. That's a good question. So in terms of willingness to be wrong, where do you draw the line in terms of risk? Okay. Yeah, so as we often say on the podcast, it depends on your risk tolerance. That's like a famous line. For, it's like it, the startups for the rest of his drinking game. Everyone takes a shot when we say it. it does depend on your risk tolerance. For me personally, I was never willing to massive like credit card debt. I was never willing to risk losing our house. I was, and some people are, and I was never willing to do that personally. I think when you're first starting out, you're risking your nights and weekends, which are precious. I know some people who have quit their day job without a line of code written. And most of them, it doesn't work out, but a few have. If you listen to the story of customer.io, Colin told it on my, the founder told it on my podcast where he said, me and my co-founder left our jobs and we had four months of runway or something. Like that feels very risky to me. I just, I don't think that's viable, but they made it work. Like some, I don't remember how they did it. Oh, they raised a small amount of funding. They were the, it was like 2012, they did some fun strapping stuff. I do think it's for each individual, but I think there are models of help doing it in a healthy way. And if you look around the community, folks who usually bootstrap something on the side or maybe raise a small round, and that's why folks do raise $100,000, is so they can quit the day job. And there really isn't much risk to them other than they have to get a day job in a year. And pretty much everyone in this room is quite employable. So I think this is, if you are partnered in your personal life, this is a really good conversation to be having with your significant other. I really think of your significant other as your first investor. And so for you to sit down with them and say, here's what I'd like to do. Here's the money I'm going to spend. Here's the time. Here's what I think it's going to look like. And here's the three month, six month, 12 month marker of whether I know it's working or not. I think that builds a tremendous amount of trust with the person you're doing life. And it, gives you some accountability to the kinds of risks that you're taking and honesty about the implications that they have, that those risks have for your life and for your family's life. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. If you haven't mentioned the MicroConf podcast on Twitter, that would be amazing. At MicroConf or hashtag MicroConf when you do the mention. We have a loyal and growing fan base for this podcast. And I think the the ability to consume talks and conversations at events that you weren't at and to be able to do it asynchronously like this. I think there's a lot of power in that. So I hope you're enjoying the podcast and are able to mention us on Twitter and give us a shout. And a final reminder, MicroConf Remote tickets are on sale, microconfremote.com. See you next week.